When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Goodison Park. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Royal Blue Podcast, an extra one for you this week. I'm Phil Kirkbride, and today I'm joined by Adam Jones, but also Dave Prentice. Nothing unusual there. You will hear us, of course, this weekend on the usual Royal Blue Podcast. The thing is dedicated to those which you've heard us discuss on the podcast uh, before and I'm sure many of you reading this, uh, listen to this. Sorry, are uh, reading if have not read the uh, team to books was now online, of course, as well for you to order and get delivered. It is ter- terrific, um, and I do genuinely urge anybody who was looking for a new book to go out and get this. Uh, and I'm pleased that we can afford the time to to dedicate a pod to it and the things that come around it and questions and. And, and Preno, look, and I know you, you, you've touched on this in the pods that we've done and, and, and various other things that you've done to help promote the book. And it's been something that was a, um, a long time, shall we say? <laughs> I think that's fair to say, yeah. Um, I started knocking together some of the little anecdotes and the little stories a long, long time ago because the stories are so good. And the circumstances in work first came to the Post and Echo allowed you to to witness some of these instances you know we had a very very privileged existence back then and so as a result some of the stories are the kind of thing that you probably would never encounter nowadays uh, or you wouldn't be allowed to encounter and so i just didn't want them to you know sort of disappear you know they're all good talking to people over a pint about them and people laughing and saying oh you've got to put that in a book you've got to put that in a book yeah so i started knocking ideas together um little anecdotes so you know so the detail wouldn't be forgotten in the midst of time and then uh, one day I just sat down and I worked out I had about 10,000 words of uh, separate stories, you know, so all knocked together. And I had always planned to put them together in book one day. And that just get, kept on getting put off and put off. We never had enough time. Uh, you know, so you two guys know, you know, so how much, much demands are placed upon us. It was always in the background, you know, something I always meant to do. And I just thought, God, I'm not getting any younger, you know. If I, if I don't get around to doing this now, you know, I'll never get around to doing it. And then, obviously, we all know what happened at the start of the year. Mm. I'd already committed, actually, to doing this. I spoke to guys with the Reach Publishers uh, just before Christmas and uh, asked if they'd be interested. And uh, they were very enthusiastic about it, very kind, and said that if you can commit to doing it, uh, we'd like to get it in the uh, before Christmas. You like, okay, well, what does that entail? Well, it entails you delivering a further 75,000 words to us by July. I thought, wow. I said, well, I don't know if I can physically do that. I said, I'll try. I said, but, you know, we'll give it a go and I'll let you know probably March, April, uh, you know, whether I can physically commit to this. Well, obviously, the world went into lockdown. I was saving myself an hour and a half's commute time every day. So 
I got really stuck into it and I'd, I'd finished by June. So yeah, you know, I literally raced through it, helped by the fact that so many of the stories are fresh in my mind. I didn't have to do a research to try and like sort of dig a lot of it out. You know, so it's all there in, in the grey matter. No, Plus the ten thousand words I already had lined up. So. Well, and I think it's just from a personal perspective of the book, I've been lucky enough to have had you regale with me with a number of these tales <laughs> over over the years, and yet rereading them still they still felt felt new and they still felt as interesting as when you first told me well that's it some of them are absolutely unbelievable you think what did that really happen you know duncan ferguson did a, a center forward the most charismatic and you know so loved figure at the football club was he actually sold behind the manager's back and uh and, and he was and you know that, that's a story which i've related in the uh in part of the serialization which we carried on the site because some of the backstories to it i mean okay everyone knows that duncan was sold behind the manager's back uh, I mean, Peter Johnson actually Spanish German as a result of that. But some of the minutiae that actually has never been published before. And that was, you know, Walter and Archie were going down the staircase at Goodison with their respective wives as Duncan was coming back up. And, um, you know, Duncan actually stopping them and saying, he says, well, I've been sold, haven't I? And Walter says, sorry, have you signed anything? Don't sign anything. You know, so you need to go and talk about it. So Walter, Archie, Janice and uh, Ethel, their respective wives, sat in the little uh, referee's room next to the changing room of the Goodisons and discussed what they were going to do. Now, I'll moderate my language here because uh, some of the language is a little bit fruity. But, um, you know, uh, Walter was saying, what are we going to do? What can we do about this? You know, so we can't have our best players sort behind our back. And there was a pause in the conversation during which Janice knocks Archie's wife piped up and said, well, Archie, We've been sat in the lounge upstairs, and if what we're hearing is true, it sounds like eight million pounds is a hell of a good deal for Duncan Ferguson. <laughs> Archie turns and goes, off. Yeah. <laughs> so, Rich, you know, so Ethel then turns around and goes, Archie, you can't talk to Janice like that. Anyway, the meeting <laughs> deteriorated, and, um, you know, they, they both went home. So the following day, I had to go down and see Walter, and then that was an experience in it because um, I think Tony Dory was the uh, the acting editor that day and tony was a guy who had a background in business journalism and he obviously believed that no credible business organization could actually operate in such a way not helped by the fact that uh, peter johnson's uh, then partner lorraine rogers was ringing the news desk and telling them that um Walter did know all about it, and Peter was nobly taking all the flack for the good of the football club so i was in walter this and i've never seen an combust so much Walter went absolutely berserk. You're sitting there, son. You're not leaving this office till you hear that chairman tell you exactly what went on. And predictably, Peter had gone round. Peter wasn't answering the phone. And he was just like absolutely incandescent with anger. So in the end, I said, look, Walter, I believe you. I believe you. I'll convince them back in the office. So, I mean, lots and lots of things like born the fact that we were allowed to go down there every single day and see the manager every single day i mean it was a, a routine that began with my predecessor ken rogers with howard kendall's era and so yeah you'd go down you'd have a cup of tea and as a result you forge your relationship with the manager you'd become close to him he, he was taking decisions that he took and he would he would trust you with a couple of little nuggets that maybe you wouldn't have trusted other people with and so it just helped in a situation like that you know you're able to see the real person behind you know so the stories that were there and like I say, privileged position. I mean, that, that that's a, a whatever era, you know, star player signed behind manager's back is a great story. But I can, I mean, what would what would that be? That story be like now, you know, in the modern twenty four hour. Chance getting sold, Angela, or something. <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 it's absolute it's a, carnage, wouldn't it? Oh well, uh, yeah, uh, very much so. Well, it was. They were they were mad times, and I do have a, a great deal of sympathy 
for Peter Johnson in one respect. I mean, we, we were quite friendly at, at time, uh, born of the fact that, like I say, his partner, Lorraine, Lorraine Rogers, was an old school friend of mine, which was bizarre, you know, so how we actually stumbled across that. Um, but we, we were quite, you know, so quite close for a time as a result of that. But then, obviously, I had to, you know, honestly and candidly report what I believed was going on at the football club. And so, well, I slaughtered him. I think mm. uh, one of the headlines on the uh, one of the pieces I wrote was "blundering, inept, and crass." That's the very <laughs> the John Tenyon as a chairman. So I can understand why he fell out with me. But equally, I understand what he was trying to do. It was just unsustainable. It was the Leeds United model. It was the model that nearly got Leeds, you know, bankrupt. Um, he was basically spitting the money that money they didn't have try and get Everton into the Champions League in the belief that that would then generate further funds, uh, you know, to helpfully, hopefully keep them successful. And obviously it's, it's, it's a model that doesn't work. You know, it's, a, it's never worked, you know, as Leeds United found out. So, you know, we had to accurately reflect that. But he meant well, Peter. He just had a very, very misguided way of going about it, unfortunately. Mm. We're not, you know, expect anybody to get the violin out for us, you know, that we have to work hard in this job. But, <laughs> you know... Obviously, for somebody in my position, you know, and and, and hearing hearing those stories previously, and then and reading them in the book, do you ever? Can you can you give the listeners um, because you've you've seen the two extremes of of, of local football journalism in, in terms of access? Can you give the, give the listeners an idea because it's reflected really well in your book? I feel in terms of the difference difference between when you were on the beat, you know, every day like me and now, yeah. to how to how it is. You know, now in in the modern the modern landscape of, of dealing well, with football clubs, yeah, it's absolutely chalk and cheese, massively different. I think in the intro to the book, I was fortunate enough to enter journalism at a time when football clubs were just starting to raise the drawbridge, and um, I think it's quite you I know mean, works quite well that metaphor because that's literally what happened. And it's not football clubs deliberately trying to obstruct, but football has become a huge sport now um, you know so the, the the media at large is so obsessed with it that there are so many avenues now trying to grab a slice of it mm. not least the football clubs own channels you know so incredibly controlling and you know when i started a job in like the late 80s early 90s my competitors you know with national newspapers who were you know fierce rivals uh, club call and um, you know, so a couple of radiations that was. As a result, the managers that wanted to see the you know get their messages out there and wanted to try and influence uh, other football clubs and influence supporters were able to use local me to do that. So I was invited down, there, like I say, on a daily basis. You could then forge relationships with the manager and with players. I mean, we went down in the morning, chatted to the manager, went back at lunchtime, and the club left it up to us to ask players if they want to be interviewed. Uh, Andre Konchelskis wasn't particularly happy. Andy Hinchcliffe was amazing. I sort of love Andy, but he mm. was always very, very, I don't know, suspicious of doing media interviews and preferred not to. But plenty of people would. Uh, but, you know, we, we were allowed to ask those questions ourselves. But as the demands increased uh, on football clubs and as obviously Sky TV wanted their slice, as the internet was invented and websites started proliferating, you know, football clubs themselves, it became impossible uh, for the managers to devote that amount of time to every single element of the media that wanted to speak to them. And so as a result, the local papers started to get less and less, you know, sort of time and less and less access. Now, I know that we're still treated differently uh, to, you know, sort of other elements of the media. Um, I know we do get you know reasonable access on occasions, but we've got to we've got to request it. You know, we've got to 
you know, it's a big plea to go along. And, you know, so and ask individuals, whereas in the 90s, especially, it was just a given. You would just go down there and you'd be granted an audience. And I think it's 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 quite obvious in the book when you look at the relationships I had with Ms. Up to date, Moyes is here, and then the relationships I had with the managers after that. Up to David Moyes, you had every manager's, you know, so a home number, you know, his mobile number, you could ring him at any time and you could bounce questions off them. And normally they dance quite honestly. And subsequently, from the point when the managers that have worked over the last few years, uh, you know, uh, Mark, uh, Ronald Koeman, uh, Sam Allardyce, not once did I have their personal number, not once did I feel like I had a special relationship with. Uh, you kept at arm's length. And the only time we had audiences is normally when we've done something wrong and yourself and myself <laughs> yeah. were, were invited along to sit in front of Roberto Martinez and defend ourselves and explain ourselves as to why we weren't being supportive enough. And then um, had to do something similar with Sam Allardyce as well. And so, yeah, it was a very, very different mindset. And I understand why it changed. I understand of necessity why it needs to be that way. But does it need to be that way? Because I also reference in the book Wayne Rooney. And Wayne Rooney actually said this about two years ago, three years ago, when he was England captain. And he said one of the first things he said to Gareth Southgate, he goes, I want a greater rapport with the media. I want the media to travel with us and I want them to stay in the same hotels as us because I want them to mix with the players. I want it to be a greater level of trust between players and the media. And that's healthy. You know, so if you do that, the reporters know they can't betray that trust. Otherwise, the players won't talk to them. They won't get anything from them. Whereas, you know, if you're willing to trust where you're likely to get more out. I thought we're being quite uh, quite mature and quite cute in doing that. And you know, whether it worked, I don't know. I don't know quite what the level of access is like now with uh, the national guys that travel around with England. But it's clearly a mindset that does still exist, can still still work. You know, if, you know, if footballers are prepared to allow it to work. Mm, yeah, and, and slightly off, off tangent, I, I did a piece last weekend actually on on... Pickford and why I felt that yeah. and understood what made him tick and understood how he was feeling about the mistakes and, and all that sort of thing. Ultimately, it's what he does in the field that shapes his Everton future. But I always feel if 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 through the media, through us, whoever, that that person can um, sort of portray them real their real selves and express that to the supporters, then there's a greater understanding and there's a greater... Um, degree of support probably and, and and when things are going wrong there's probably a, a more of an understanding look we know what jordan's about he'll be hurting mm. he'll do it right all that sort of thing you know 100 yeah. percent. You, sorry, sorry adam go on oh, well, i was just going to say i feel like that's certainly the case, especially with current players that we've got now I don't, well what for you guys i often get you know family members asking me about certain players in the squad that i might have interviewed a few weeks ago and they go oh what was he like you know i i think he seems like this this and this and i i can all go we used had loads of time for me, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And yeah, I do agree that you know if the players were given maybe perhaps a bit more time to, with the media to be able to express these kinds of things, you know what what the attitude was like a few years ago. Obviously, it's it's something that I've never been able to experience in this job, which I kind of I kind of uh, I feel a bit bad about to be honest. It is. It's regretful because you know you actually get to know the person. In front of the uh, the image that's constructed, you know, so by the media. I mean, we see Jordan Pickford when he's made a mistake, you know, laughing to himself, you know, so on the goal line, and he gets absolute pelters for it. But if you spoke to him about it, you can understand that and reflect it in the pieces that you write. You're not, you know, sort of telling any tales. You're not, you know, sort of betraying any trust. You're just giving an insight into why somebody behaves the way they do. That allows fans to then share in that. Just understand the situation. 
by putting barriers up and by putting you know sort of screens up players or people you know the fans are led to come to their own conclusions and often they're they're mistaken and so yeah you know having this access to this and allowing fans to share in you know sort of that access helps everybody i think the royal blue podcast from the liverpool echo mother's day is around the corner find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from blue nile from timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones blue nile has something she'll adore need it fast most items can ship overnight plus enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Of course, as, as is reflected in the book, and so, you know, and, and, and you're, you know, you, you, you probably refer to some of the former Everton players now as friends more than, you know, as, yeah. you know, rather than having, you know, acquaintances or professional colleagues in that respect. And I just wondered, Pran, I mean, Before we get on to what's in the book, I was thinking about this other night. I was thinking, is it was the stuff that, that had to be left out because maybe there was, wasn't wasn't the room or it was just we uh, we would just get, you know, we probably need another another two chapters to really do justice or so, so yeah, there's there's a there's a few stories and that, that I would be betraying the trust of people um in the if I was to go into more dial than, than I have done, which uh, which I wouldn't do. Uh, there is one story in there about um a, a former Everton player that came to me um talked about writing his autobiography and uh, when I was talking to him it then became apparent that there were much greater problems you know in his life than getting a book deal and uh, he talked to me about how he tried to commit, kill himself and commit suicide and it got Jesus. very very close you know where he'd actually put himself in his car he'd put a rubber hose through the wind, uh, window and he turned the engine on and um you know his, his dad found him and basically saved him Now, I wouldn't name that guy because, you know, course, yeah. he's conquered those demons. You know, he's completely over it. He's, you know, living a very, very healthy, you know, so for life now. So I just don't think it would do any good, you know, so to name that. Some of the other stories in there, you know, more lighthearted ones, you know, so some of the drinking escapades in the other nineties. <laughs> that's all the, the kind of stuff that players talk about amongst themselves anyway. I don't think there's any harm in bringing them to a, a, a greater public. But to highlight, and, and again, it's in the book, but for, you would... you. You'd go drinking with the players, and you know, pre-season, you'd be mixing with them. I mean, you know, I, I was, for example, I was in the same hotel as the team in Kenya, for example, pre-season. And there was a little bit of mixing, but you know, the idea that I'd be sitting up with them, and they, they wouldn't be drinking, of course, but the idea that we'd be having a meal together—it's just, it's, it's foreign concept. I mean, it's a different sport now, of course. I mean, it's not that long ago, to be fair. I'm only talking 25, 30 years, but there was a drinking. Existed, yeah. which you know, so it's largely been eradicated now. You know, so obviously players do go for a pint now, but it's not quite you know so the same as it was back then. But yeah, that was a that was just a given because you were the local reporter. I mean, that incident we're talking about uh, down in Bournemouth, we were playing Portsmouth on the Tuesday or the Wednesday night in a League Cup tie, and in Southampton on the Saturday. So it made sense for the team to stay down south, you know, rather than come back up. And I thought, well, I heard that. So it was for me to split them. And, you know, the manager, I think Michael was a little bit, you know, I wouldn't say upset at, you know, sort of my presence there, but you know, he, was, he was willing to, you know, sort of enjoy me being there. And I knew a lot of the players anyway. So after played on Tuesday night, a few of them went into Bournemouth on a night out, a few stayed in the hotel, and I stayed with them. And you know, we had a few drinks, and, you know, the world was getting put to rights. And that was why I ended up with uh, Ian Snowden and uh, David Burroughs coming close. 
<laughs> I remember, you know, one of one of Duncan Ferguson's mates who was there, who was there, Tommy Tommy Griff, managed to like separate them and you know, so hold them apart. And uh, the other players had heard what had happened. You know, not everybody was there that night. And I was um, having breakfast the following morning, and suddenly I was the most popular man in the hotel. They're all coming over. What went on last night? What went on? <laughs> <laughs> and it was great. You know, so it was just like so very very entertaining. But yeah, it probably wouldn't happen that half keeping you at arm's length so players you wouldn't be allowed to even witness something like that and players now probably wouldn't be letting the hair down having a few beers after the game they'd no, probably be rehydrating and you know so going into cryo that's what they all do isn't it <laughs> yeah that's what i do after every pitch five side yeah rehydrate. <laughs> and i don't want you to give away too much to the instance because obviously we we people can get and pick a copy of the book up but is there a is there a favourite story in there that you just couldn't wait to to sort of commit to to print almost? I don't know that there's lots in there that um, I really enjoy, but the, the one that I particularly liked was um, was Diamonds. You know, so my old mate Graham Stewart who'd been been bombed by Joe Royal um, early on. I mean, Diamond later came to be very very you know so sort of popular, but the spell just. Couldn't get a game, and yeah. he was—he uh, wasn't even in the squad, and he was getting more and more frustrated. And uh, he rang me on a Thursday and just said, "Look, you know, so I've not been in the squad for however many weeks it was now. Do you want to go for a beer? Do you want to go out?" I said, "Yeah, come on, go for a pint." So we had a few pints locally. Then went into Southport, uh, ended up in the, the the Kingsway, which I don't even think the Kingsway exists anymore. Bumped into it. Vinnie Samways was in there, being bombed long by Joe Royal and Peter Beering. He was like a big pile, uh, big diamonds. So we ended up staying there quite late. Then went back to the Grapes in Formby, uh, where Colin, the landlord, had opened up for us to have a bit of a stay behind. So you know, obviously, Diamonds a lot younger than me. He's a much greater constitution. <laughs> had Peter Beagle. He was fast asleep in a Chesterfield chair in the corner, and uh, I said, "Right, look, you know, so I need to go home now. You know, so I've had enough." He goes, "All right, mate. You know, so I'll, I'll speak to you in you know, a couple of days." So um, woke up one of the towns. I'll never guess what's happened. So go on. He's named me in the squad for the game on Saturday. Everton are playing Blackburn, Blackburn champions elect. Yes. Oh, yeah. You're joking me. He goes, look, I, I need to get, you know, so go and run this new system. And so I agree. Uh, Man City was playing for Man City. They were playing Palace away the Saturday. So this was Thursday night. So the Friday, uh, Diamond was training. I think Beagers had gone to Manchester City's training ground where he got the coach down to the London game of Crystal Palace. But Diamond had a little session. He'd um, gone to bed again, slept it off. The following day, what happens against Blackburn? He only scores an absolute worldie. <laughs> a little dink over Tim Flowers from 25 yards. Absolutely great goal. Beagers, on the other hand, was substituted at half-time. <laughs> so, the moral of that story is, Everson footballers can take their eye better than Manchester City footballers and perform better than Everton. And, and any Everton player who's not in the team who lives in the, uh, in the Formby region... Give Preno a ring. Go out on the on the last, <laughs> yeah. and, you'll be, and you'll be back in the team. <laughs> if Ina only gets dropped and falls out of favour with Carlo, expect a phone call, Preno. Well, that's it. To be honest, I mean, you still see players occasionally, you know, so around for me, but now, you know, it's like they might jog past during lockdown. You certainly see, you know, and it's quite funny actually because Formby Cricket Club around the corner here. Uh, apparently he'd actually ran onto the field there and they've got like a, an artificial turf, an artificial mm. surface. And he was using that uh, you know, so for some of his uh, sessions and what have you. And one of the committee members of Formby Cricket Club saw him on this pitch doing like shuttles and what have you, went across and turfed him off. And <laughs> a couple of the other members are saying, hang on, that 
do you know what you mean? He's a World Cup footballer. He's a Premier League footballer. Can't you let him train on our cricket club? No, nope, wow. not having it. He's not training on our pitch. And it's like, you know, but, you know, so you don't, you don't see them in pubs. You don't see them in restaurants anymore. They live in a huge mansion which have gated walls, you know, which is yeah. a shame. Um, and again, and I, and I don't want you to sort of um, give too much away in, in terms of what's in the book, but I know people, you know, this isn't a book, you know, just for people who enjoyed, oh, I say enjoyed inverted commas, it, it was up and down, wasn't it, in the 90s and people who, whilst you were really on the beat, you know, people for that generation, you know, this book is applicable for people of Adam's generation and younger, you know. So what was, you know, what was Moyes like? I, I like Moyes an awful lot. I've got an awful lot of time for him. Now, he's never going to be the life and soul of a party. You know, let, let's get that straight. I mean, he does have a pint, but, you know, he's a very intense, very, very serious individual who is, is, is reason for living is to be a success as a football manager. But he's 100% honest. I mean, yeah. the number of managers I've spoken to that are told lies, that have <laughs> led me... and. Fucking manager I consider mates. I mean, Walter Smith, uh, when Nick Barnby was sold, um, I got a phone call at the office, you know, from somebody that worked at Bill Kenwright's organisation down in London. And uh, said that I've just Bill say, I've heard you know, the, the, the six words I never thought I would hear in the English language. I want to play for Liverpool. And it, it just sounded, you know, true. It sounded right. So I rang Walter. I said, look, you know, I've just heard that, you know, Nick Barnby's going to Liverpool. No, absolute bollocks. Absolute bollocks. I said, well, would you know in light of what happened with Ferguson? And, you know, can, you can imagine what his response was. You know, so, you know, so anyway, he was lying to me. Apparently he had, um, he later told me Steve Watson sat opposite him. He was trying to convince Steve Watson to sign for Everton. And if he'd have heard that Everton's best player was leaving to go to a Liverpool, he might right. have thought otherwise and didn't. So he misled me deliberately. Although subsequent Everton managers said that, well, he could have rung you back afterwards and let you know, but he mm. didn't. Whereas Moyes would never, ever do that. If you asked him about a transfer story, he would tell you the truth. I mean, Franny Jeffers, one of Franny's mates, rang me once and said that, look, you know, they're trying to bring Franny back. Um, this was in 2001, I think it was. So, 2002. So, I rang Moyes said, look, I've heard, you know, you might be interested in bringing Franny Jeffers back. He's like, oh my God, how do you know about that? He says, I haven't met him yet. We're going to go and meet him tomorrow before the game against Arsenal. Uh, you know, don't write anything, please, because, you know, we've not even had a conversation. Because he was so honest with me, I had to be honest. Okay, if I write anything, but, you know, if anything comes of it, please let me know and we'll carry a story. Obviously, something did come of this, you know, so, and we got that story. But he was, he was absolutely honest, you know, so to the nth degree. And he was available, as we would always say on the end of the phone. And yes, for more than, you know, so in journalism, if a manager yeah. is prepared to make himself available and be honest with you, you know, you've yeah. got the job cracked, to be honest. I mean, nowadays, A, getting hold of a manager's phone number is tough enough. So, uh, yeah, I've got a lot of time for David Moyes. And I wouldn't say we keep in touch. But, you know, so we have occasional correspondences, either via text or email. Uh, I think West Ham were playing them quite soon and I sat That's next right. to him for the yeah. first half before I obviously bored him to see us and he went and sat somewhere else in the second half. <laughs> <laughs> but no, well, I remember, Preno, when we went to a, we went to West Ham for the fated last game of Sam Allardyce's tenure, didn't we? And yeah. uh, we, I remember us being in the press conference room for that game when Moyes was you know, in his first tenure at West Ham and the first yeah. thing he said just before he sat down was, hello, Preno. So he, <laughs> he, he, seemed, he seems like he's got a good rapport with you. And I was great in a pre-season tours uh, when we went to Austria. Um, he actually invited me along to actually, because he did, um, 
you take the players for an early morning swim, first of all, in like some cold lake or something. It was like a wake-up for them to swim in a lake. And then they go on a very, very slow run. It'd be very he said to me, do you want to join us? You know, so you can like run at the, at the back. So I did, you know, so me and him were at the back while the players were just jogging very, very slowly at the front. And just a way of him involving me, I suppose, because when you're on peas and tall, you know, and you're there, you can be a little bit isolated at times, a little bit, you know, so left to your own devices. So I appreciated that. But also the players see you, you know, being involved in that respect and you become a little bit more embraced by them. They see you as being a threat, but being, you know, maybe a little bit part of the media team at the football club. I mean, obviously that's changed significantly now because the football club, you know, the media team at Everton Football Club now probably numbers, you know, sort of 450 strong. Whereas, you know, then it was probably press office and that was it. So, no, it, it was good. You know, so I, I do have an awful lot of time for David Moyes. But I was allowed to build that relationship and that rapport with him. Subsequent managers, I wasn't. You know, so, I mean, Roberto Martinez, I think my role had changed by then. I became board strap then. Uh, and then deputy sports editor. So I wasn't going down to the training ground as often. Uh, but equally, you know, the guys that followed me, um, you know, so didn't get anything like the same level of access. And so went allowed to build that core. I mean, yourself have got a great role with some, you know, very, very uh, senior figures at the football club. But you've had to work very hard uh, to make the, those relationships. Um, it was largely gifted to me. So lots of, you know, predecessors came before. Okay, um, so just before we wrap up, Prenna, this is where you have to uh, go all uh, the apprentice, Alan Sugar, and, 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 <laughs> and, and, and tell everybody that it's selling like a hot cake and how you can still get a copy, where you can get a copy, and why it's the ideal Christmas present. Right, well, I don't know what the, the sales figures are like at the moment, but a very, very positive uh, suggestion to Waterstones and Liverpool Centre to, uh, to sign, because obviously the world that we live in now, we can't do a launch. It's very difficult to actually do signed copies. So I said, yeah, I'll go in and I'll, uh, I'll sign whatever you want me to. So I went in, uh, the girl greeted me, Becky said, well, I've got uh, some bad news. I said, oh, go on. Well, the good news, sorry, the bad news is we've only got 10 copies. I said, all oh, right, okay. But the good news is that's because we've sold all the others. I think mm -hmm. I don't know how many they got, 50 odd had sold, and they're going to get 150 odd in next week. So I said, oh, well, that suggests like it's selling very well. That's good news. And she goes, oh, yeah, the last couple of days it started to really sell very, very quickly. So I'm pleased with that. It's had a positive reaction on social media. Um, uh, did a review, which was very positive. Um, so, yeah, I'm pleased with all that. Uh, but yeah, it's you know, still available uh, in what do they say? All good bookshops. You can yep. buy it online, but if you want a tip, uh, the Reach Sport Bookstore has got a sloth for them. I think it's four percent quite hard lasts, I don't know. So the actual $14.99 hardback price in the shops, you can get it for $8.99 on the Reach uh, bookstore, which is an absolute bargain, I would suggest. It is, um, it is. yeah, you know, it's available uh, you know, online, all bookstores wherever you want to buy it. And if you want a signed copy, uh, Waterstones and Liverpool City Centre are going to invite me back in to sign whatever copies they've got there. If anybody wants signed messages, just leave a message with them and I'll put on it whatever you want to, you know, for a Christmas gift or you want to take the mickey out of somebody, you know, so I'll, uh, I'll write in there whatever you wish. So, uh, that, that's my sales pitch. <laughs> Brilliant know. and uh, a good one as well. Excellent. Well, Prano, thank you uh, very much for sharing your insight into the, uh, to the book grand old team to report available now and uh, this has been the royal blue podcast you've been listening to the royal blue podcast from the liverpool echo